Well, we live in interesting times. This week, as you no doubt heard, the Supreme Court made decisions on two cases, the Defense of Marriage Act and California's Proposition 8, and virtually paved the way for a redefinition of marriage at the federal level. These are interesting times in part because of the level of vitriol and shock that's shown to those who define marriage traditionally, as sometimes it's called, or as we should say, according to the Bible. It's not uncommon these days to read op-ed pieces that suggest that any opposition to same-sex marriage is tantamount to hate speech. These are also interesting times, in part because of how quickly things seem to have changed and change, are still changing. In 2009, President Bill Clinton was still supportive of the Defense of Marriage Act. President Obama only became enlightened on the issue a year ago. Hillary Clinton, only one week ago, came out in public support for same-sex marriage, and yet the world rolls, our eye, rolls their eyes at us like we've come from another planet, like we're stuck in a, another, not just century, but millennia. My point this morning is not a political rant at all. My point is that we Christians are looking more dumb and more backwards and more strange, more quickly dismissed, and even more problematic to our society, it seems like with every passing headline. These are interesting times, and these are quickly changing times, but on the whole, these are not unusual circumstances for Christians. It may be unusual in our lifetime and in this country, but it's nothing compared with the opposition that Christians face in other parts of the world today, like the opposition that our missionaries will likely face in North Africa. It's nothing compared with the persecution the church has faced in the past 2,000 years. We've been seeing that again and again in 1 Peter a letter that we've been studying in the past several months. We've been seeing the reality of persecution and, and being in this world but not of it again and again. It's been a timely study, I think a needed study, a study about being aliens in a strange world, being strangers and sojourners, being a people between two worlds, one foot in the world to come, one foot still in this present world. And our passage this morning of 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13, describes this and gives us advice or commandments, teaching for how to navigate in this tension once again. It says this, 1 Peter 3, in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And we'll stop there in the middle of a sentence. Verse 18 functions like a hinge between two sections, so we'll talk about it this week and then a little bit more again next week. I think there are five main themes in this passage that deserve our attention this morning. The first is a zeal for good. A zeal for good. Christians should have a zeal for good. That's how the passage begins with verse, uh, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now we get the zealous for good part of this, but, but why does Peter write, who is there to harm you? Peter's probably a couple years away, as he writes this, from being crucified by the Roman government. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? We know church history. We know the Bible. We know his teaching earlier in this letter that those who do good will still suffer at evil hands. But what Peter's doing here in verse 13 is stating a general rule of thumb like he did earlier. In chapter 2, verse 14, he said that governors are sent by the Lord to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's a general rule of thumb. Of course there are exceptions. Some do it better than others. But generally speaking, even in the worst of governments, you do good, you're okay. You do bad and eventually you'll be in trouble. Like Paul said in Romans 13, rulers, leaders are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. So Peter's tapping into that tradition saying, who is there to harm you if you do what's good? Generally speaking, that's true. But Peter also writes like this to make sure that first century Christians, those he's writing to in Roman provinces, that they know Christians don't revolt. Christians don't revolt. And revolting was not an uncommon thing in the Greco-Roman world. It would have been naturally expected, and of course it was rumored that these Christians were just like any other passionate group who was disenfranchised and on the outside and losing out in some ways, it was expected that eventually they'll say, enough's enough, and they'll take up swords. So in the Roman world, there were slave revolts. There were a few Jewish revolts. And about the time that Peter is writing this letter that we're reading today, the mid-60s A.D., a new Jewish revolt was brewing. It would later be called the Great Revolt because it lasted five years and it ended with the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. And one million Jews died as a result. As Peter writes his letter, this letter, the Great Revolt probably hasn't started yet, but it was indeed brewing. And it was brewing most hotly in a Jewish sect called the Zealots. They were zealots because they were zealous, as you might guess. They were zealous for religion and zealous for revolution. Well, many New Testament scholars think that Peter is playing off those words, those dynamics, with verse 13. 
He's calling for Christians to be zealous for good works, not zealous for revolt, making a distinction for the watching world. We're not them. We're zealous not for revolt, but, but for good and for good works. As he's already said, Christians should honor the emperor and obey the authorities that are over them as much as they possibly can, unless it conflicts with what their, their true emperor, the Lord himself, says. A few verses later, in 1 Peter 3, Peter will go on to repeat this call to do good and to not do evil. Verse 17, he says, It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He's saying again, we don't do evil. Don't get in trouble for evil. Instead, we respond to evil with good. We don't pay back reviling with reviling. We saw that last week. Chapter 3, verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. You respond with blessing, not with cursing. This is what you're called to. And in return, you earn and by God's grace receive blessing. Now, what does it mean to do good? That's a pretty vague thing, and it's put a few different ways in our passage. Be zealous for what is good. Righteousness is mentioned a few verses later. Good behavior in Christ. Do good. These really don't tell us what it means to do good, though. It doesn't show us what it looks like. And the New Testament does this in many places. It's unashamedly vague at times. So in Galatians 6.10, we're told... As we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. It's just like what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But, but what does it look like to have light before men and to, to show them good works, to do our good works in public, that they might see that it's real, this thing we believe, and they might come to join us in glorifying the Heavenly Father? What does it mean? Well, we saw last week something of that when, when Peter quotes from Psalm 34, it's back in verse 11 of 1 Peter 3. He says, you turn away from evil and you do good. You seek peace and you pursue it. That's part of what it means to do good. And we could just keep backing up into 1 Peter's letter here, working our way in it to see what might be good. Like in chapter 3, verse 7, here's good. Husbands honoring their wives. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives loving and honoring and following their husbands with inner beauty. That's doing good. Doing good looks like Jesus, who back in chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't lie. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Doing good means not always getting our justice and being okay with it because there's a justice to come. It's chapter 2, verse 18, where workers are respecting and doing good to those who are over them. 
4, it says verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it and you endure, but if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a grace thing. We saw in chapter 2, verse 13, that we should be good citizens and we should honor and obey the government. It's part of doing good. We saw in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that it means abstaining from the passions of the flesh and instead having honorable conduct, an honorable conduct on display before a watching world. Or how this chapter begins, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, is one whole section about how we should be a distinct people, united to Christ, united to each other, standing on Christ as the cornerstone, making up a a spiritual temple, doing spiritual sacrifices, meeting together for worship like we are right now, being a people of his own possession, being like him, and doing his priestly work like proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what it means to do good. It sounds vague or maybe innocent, plain, vanilla. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the little stuff in the Bible that says so much. Like Philippians 2, there Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You want to be salt and light in this world? Don't complain. Don't grumble. That will stand out. That's unusual. That sends a signal that you're maybe from a different planet or at least of a different economy of getting by and dealing with life. Doing good is not unlike what God said to those exiled to Babylon back a thousand years before Peter's time. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's what it means to do good. But like Daniel, who was of that exile into Babylon, we know from the story of Daniel that doing good and being righteous and holding fast to the one true God is not always appreciated by others, by those who are not his. And sometimes they vehemently or even violently oppose. Which leads to the second point. A hostile response. A zeal for good, that's our job, but often there's a hostile response. Verse 13, as we already looked at, said, Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now that phrase can be taken another way than how we have so far. Oftentimes the New Testament Bible writers write sayings, phrases, with some kind of double meaning. Forked tongue, tongue in cheek, you could say. And I think that's what's happening here with verse 13. You see, on the one hand, as we've already talked about, it's a general principle. Good generally isn't punished. You won't suffer for doing good, generally speaking. 
Romans, 12, uh, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 tell us that. But on the other hand, I think Peter may mean to say, even if you should suffer, who is there to harm you? I know that sounds like a contradiction, but, but you get it. Even if you suffer, what can they do? This kind of teaching is all over the Bible. Like in Luke 21, where Jesus said to his disciples, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. You'll be killed, but don't worry. Not one hair will fall off your head. What's the point of that? What? What's he saying? He's saying, yeah, they can't really get to you. I protect you. Anything they do to you is because I allow it. I, I don't let one hair fall off your head apart from my decree that it's so. And so you can trust me. You don't need to worry. As Paul said in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? That doesn't mean that no one's against you. It means it doesn't matter. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? They can't separate us from the love of Christ. And then Paul quotes the Old Testament, as it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. And yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquering through being killed, famine, sword, plague. Who can be against us? Paul, they're, they're really against you. And you said, we're being killed all day long, whether in our bodies or ongoingly through circumstances. We're opposed. And yet, we're more than conquerors. Or put it in Peter's more succinct words, even if you suffer, who is there to harm you? What can they do? The, the most they can do is kill you. And to the world, that sounds like that's everything. But we have this principle. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's very much better, Paul says in Philippians 1, to go and to be with the Lord, it's win-win. But verse 14 makes it even clearer. Yes, on the one hand, who is there to harm you? But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, verse 14 says. Not even if, implying that these Christians weren't suffering or might not. In fact, we know from church history that they were suffering we know that they, their suffering would get worse from this point on out. But even if you suffer, not just because you're part of a fallen world and life is hard, but you suffer for Christ's sake, you're blessed. You shouldn't be surprised. That's what he'll say a chapter later. Chapter 4, verse 12. Don't be surprised by a fiery trial that comes upon you as though it were a strange thing. You serve a suffering Savior. Our leader was crucified. We follow in his steps. We follow today in the steps of those of the first century, those Christians in the Bible. 
who, as it says back in chapter 2, verse 12, they were spoken against as evil. The culture around them misrepresented them, misunderstood them, maligned them. They were thought to be atheists, pagans, uh, antisocial, against the government. They were troublemakers. They were thought to be involved with uh, polygamy and, and all kinds of other things. They were misunderstood and misrepresented in the world. They were reviled. Shouldn't be surprised. Verse 16 says, when they slander you, not if, when. When they slander you, when they revile your good behavior. It's a frustrating thing to be misunderstood or quickly dismissed or misrepresented, but we shouldn't be surprised we look at our Savior. But let's make sure that we're not suffering for our evil. Peter makes that clear in verse 17 when he says, it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. That sounds like it's a no-brainer. Yeah, of course it's better to do good. If you've got to suffer, you might as well do good and suffer than do bad and suffer. But again, he's trying to disassociate the Jesus movement from zealotry and revolt, taking over. We're not them. We don't do evil. Oh, we do. We're fighting against it, though. We hate it. We're trying to oppose it. We're trying to leave it behind. It's our former self. And also in our ongoing lives, we don't want to one-on-one with others. We don't want to have them mad at us because we deserve it? We don't want to be jerks. We don't want to be selfish. We shouldn't be loud mouths. We shouldn't suffer for doing evil like that. We shouldn't suffer relationships because we're haughty or because we talk too much or because we put people down. We Christians have something more at stake. We don't always do good at this. Bertrand Russell said the problem with Jesus is that he had disciples. Mark Twain said, if Christ were here now, there's one thing he wouldn't be, a Christian. Now, On the one hand, those are the cheap retorts of skeptics who would rather point the finger than examine themselves. But this is also something of uh, the truth written on the subway walls, isn't it? I mean... These guys met Christians and ones that didn't represent Christ so well. But as much as it depends on us for the cause of Christ in this world, be at peace with all. We desire to love life and see good days by fleeing evil, not returning evil for evil. We turn away from evil and seek to do good. We want to seek peace and pursue it. So, Christian, in the face of a hostile response, do good, and do good some more. Are you zealous for what is good, even when you're reviled and opposed? In the face of freedoms being threatened in our day, we must keep doing good. That doesn't imply utter passivity in our role with the government especially in a democracy. We honor the God-given institution and we involve ourselves in it. We care for it. We seek its good. We pray for it. We, we vote in it. And, and we, we do discourse where that's appropriate. 
But we shouldn't let our political activity mutate into something that's sub-Christian. We shouldn't let it eclipse the other things that God wants us to do. Yes, he wants us to seek the good of the nation on a public level and also personally. So we can't let any political involvement squeeze out the simplicity and the beauty and the God-given prescription here of simply doing good, even in a hostile environment. Thirdly, Peter talks about a necessary mindset. There's a necessary mindset for us to, to have persecution, to be misunderstood, to be maligned, to be excluded, to be squeezed out, to be dismissed, and to keep doing good in love. We've already seen one aspect of this mindset. It's in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Peter got this right from his Lord's lips. In the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed means happy. They're blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We can have joy in the midst of persecution because it shows we're his. We follow in his footsteps. We identify with him. There's something of an intimate communion in sharing in his sufferings. Oh, his were way more important than any kind of suffering you've ever had. But when we suffer for his namesake, when we suffer explicitly for being a Christian, we identify ourselves with him and in his suffering in such a way that there's sweet communion and fellowship and it strengthens faith. And it causes us to look ahead. Great is your reward in heaven. It causes us to look back. Prophets of old face the same thing, and we're in that same stream of God's people. We're blessed. So we can go about this with no fear. Verse 14 says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled by them. Remember, he already said, Who is there to harm you? What can they do? Who can condemn? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Remember when Peter earlier wrote to the wives in chapter 3, and he said, don't fear anything that is fearful. He doesn't say there aren't fearful things. He says we don't need to fear them. Don't fear what is fearful. Just like Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but afterwards they have nothing more they can do. Fear him who after he has killed the body has authority to cast into hell. That's Jesus. We fear him, not fear him like we're intimidated by him or, or, or we just simply cower. But no, we, we have awe-filled love and joy and respect for him. To fear him is to obey him. It's, as Peter says in verse 15, it's to honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, he says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I think the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15 go together. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
but honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's sort of like those little pithy sayings that were back in chapter 2, verse 17. Remember that? Fear God. Yes, honor the emperor. You don't fear the emperor and honor God. You, you fear God. You honor the emperor. You don't fear them. You're not troubled by them. But tremble at this. Christ is Lord. He is your Lord. And he's to be honored as holy in your hearts. And this leads to a good conscience. Verse 16 leads into this. Having a good conscience. Like Jesus, we keep entrusting our soul to him who judges justly. Because he's sovereign not only at the end of the day, in the end of days, but he's sovereign every day. So any suffering that comes our way is God's will. It says that. Verse 17, if that should be God's will, as he'll say a chapter later, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We can be freed up from the worry and consequences. We can be freed up from the circumstances all around us. We can be freed up from the burden of the crumbling economy, the crumbling government, or... or, or, or crumbling relationships at work or something. We can, we can be freed up from these because our conscience is tied to Christ. And he's the judge. And he'll judge justly. And whatever suffering we have is according to God's will. We suffer like this because there is a watching world and we are to live lives that signal something supernatural. Our lives... Our good deeds and our patient endurance, though, are not enough to live out and help this lost and dying world. This lost and dying world needs words, not just actions. That's why Peter writes verse 15 like he does. This is the fourth thing. A ready witness. A ready witness. Let's read verses 15 and then into 16. He says... But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy and always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. This is a familiar part in the Bible to many of us. It's one that's quoted often, not just for evangelism and witnessing, telling of the gospel in the world, but it's often used to describe something more than witnessing or a special kind of witnessing. Sometimes we call it apologetics. Apologetics is that, that discipline and that study and that practice of making a logical, coherent case for, for God's truth. So the existence of sin or, or the existence of God or the reality of Jesus or the historicity of the New Testament accounts or the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what we call apologetics, trying to prove that or argue that rationally. And that can be a worthwhile endeavor. Many people have come to faith in part through that kind of discussion, perhaps with a, a thoughtful friend who knows and studies these kinds of things. 
You certainly see something like that in the Bible where Paul's preaching in Acts and his preaching is described as reasoning with his audience. He's uh, seeking to persuade, trying to convince, it says. We should do that as we're able to. In 1 Peter 3.15, sounds something like that, a prepared defense, a reasoned explanation. But it's important for us to not read into something here that's not there, to read in more than what Peter intended. It's important for us to not miss what he most likely had in mind. We don't think like he probably thought here of this verse because it hasn't happened to us yet. I think what Peter has in mind here in verse 15 with this defense is a legal defense. I think he's primarily talking about a courtroom scene. We know this because of how that word defense is used in the book of Acts. In Acts 22 to 28, we find six speeches from the Apostle Paul. He's been arrested, he's imprisoned, and he's going through several trials. And each time there's a trial, he's told that he's able to give a defense. Same Greek word as 1 Peter 3.15, defense, apologia, an apologetic. He gives these defenses each time. He also says in Philippians 1 and 2 Timothy 4 that he is standing defense. He says in the latter passage, 2 Timothy 4, no one stood with me at my defense. That means at my hearing. That means no one came and, and was willing to testify on my behalf, to be a witness for me, for my help and good. So Peter has that kind of thing in mind of a trial, a courtroom, having to explain yourself legally. He has in mind what Jesus talked about when he first sent the disciples out. That first time in Matthew 10, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the kind of thing Peter has in mind in 1 Peter 3.15, giving a defense before those who've dragged us into a court. But that doesn't mean that what Peter has in mind here is merely a legal defense, as if the goal was to get out, if the goal was simply to get justice or, or have freedom. It's not the same thing as today, a freedom being lost and, and being represented by the American Center of Law and Justice to, to, to win that case. There's a time for that. That's useful. But at least Peter's telling us it can't be just that. You see, when Paul does these speeches of defense in Acts 22 to 28, you see some things recur. He tells his conversion story. Look, I used to be like that. Now I'm like this. Here's what happened. Jesus showed up, light, off the donkey, blind. Go to the town, wait. I did. They told me I was going to be a preacher, so I am. 
And I'm just simply doing what Jesus said to do. I saw the light. I was blind. It's clearly the Lord. I'm only doing what he said. He's also intent to clarify that this new Jesus thing is in a sense nothing new at all, but it's part of a stream from the Old Testament and flowing to the new and on into eternity. Paul wants to clear up that this whole Jesus movement isn't looking to stir up trouble in the government. He's also arguing that he's done nothing worthy of arrest. He's done nothing illegal. At one point he appeals to Caesar and thereby utilizes a, a legal right that he has. But most importantly, in these defense speeches, Paul testifies of the lordship of Christ and the reality of his resurrection and the need for repentance and faith. And at times, he even gets risky in how pointed and personal he is. Like with Agrippa, after arguing that Jesus was the inevitable outcome of Old Testament promises, he says, King Agrippa, you believe the prophets, don't you? I know you do. And King Agrippa hits the brakes right then and says, Paul, you're almost persuading me to be a Christian. Agrippa's right on. That's exactly what Paul's intending to do. You see, he's not just defending self. He's not defending freedoms. He's not defending what's right. He's defending Christ. He's explaining the hope that's within him. And that's why 1 Peter 3.15, now, having known that, having seen that, that it applies to the courtroom, it may come our way someday. We can also say that then it, it applies to any time we get to explain the hope that's within us. Anytime we get to testify of Jesus, we're doing 1 Peter 3.15. You see, if we can testify of Christ when it's the most risky, they already got you. There's some sort of punishment looming, imprisonment or death. If you preach Christ then, then you preach Christ whenever else you can, right? You preach Christ whenever else there's opportunity. You preach hope. That's the centerpiece of what Peter wants us to talk of where we have opportunity. Hope is synonymous with the, the gospel itself and with Jesus and in, in all the benefits that come in him through the cross and resurrection. Hope is essentially the saving package of Jesus. It's both facts and reality about the gospel and that happy confident experience of the gospel that's ours, both in the past and in the future and in the present. Not a hope so, like we hope to go on vacation this year, but a certainty and a joy and a confidence. That's what Peter wants us to explain, to testify of. So if you're tempted to think of 1 Peter 3.15 as setting up parameters for debate, don't. There are some people in your life that might be helped by a, a book or by certain arguments that are logical or historical, and you put these things in place, and, and it could be building blocks that lead to faith. But First Peter 
has hope. The hope that's within us is the centerpiece. Think of this verse less about debate and think of it less as some kind of sophisticated checkmate argument, but more about the simplicity of describing how you came to faith and what it means. Some will ask. If someone asks about the hope that's within you, what would you say? They won't ask us if there's nothing different about us. They don't ask us often or ever, it seems like. But what, what if? Be prepared for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within you. And always be prepared for this. How prepared are you? Every Christian should be able to say something true and saving about the gospel. If you've come to believe the gospel, you know enough about the gospel that you can lead someone else to the gospel. Or else you don't have the gospel. You're believing something else. But we should get better at it. We should grow in our comfortableness in having these kind of conversations. We should grow in our familiarity with the Bible. Do you have gospel nuggets in your Bible belt? In your pockets, you have memorized gospel nuggets, a verse that describes basically the essence of what it means to become a Christian and what we rest our hope in. What would you say if asked? Remember who it is who writes verse 15. It's Peter. And remember that infamous moment on the night of Jesus' arrest where a little peasant girl came up and said, weren't you with him? Aren't you one of them? I think I saw you with him. You're one of them, aren't you? And he denied it. Eventually he denied it three times with increasing vehemence. You don't think Peter thought of that as he wrote verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you of the hope that's within you. We should be ready. We should be ready for the opportunities that come up out of nowhere. And we shouldn't just take the easy ones, but the hard ones. When the ones begin with a very hard question, not just, what is the hope that's within you? But what do you think about? If you don't have the answer, tell them you will get it. Find the best one you can. Be on the watch for opportunities. Be intentional. Don't wait to be asked because it's extremely rare to be asked. No one looks at Christians and goes, go ahead, just tell me. Tell me everything you know. Just tell me what you love and like about Jesus and why he's your Lord. And It'd be great if they asked, but it's rare, and so we always look for opportunities. And we look for opportunities for the next step. You see, we should be intentional and forward-moving in our relationships. We should know where we are in a conversation and in a relationship with someone, and we should know what the next step is. Because sometimes God just microwaves the whole process. Someone just reads a small little tract, and that's it. Faith comes into the heart, and they're saved. Or you simply shared a verse with a friend, and they got it right then. They said, what do I have to do to be saved? And then, boom, that's it. They're, they went from darkness to light, and 
in this conversation with you, the very first one. Sometimes that happens. A lot of times it's a slower progression with several stages. So think about new people you meet as potential gospel relationships. Begin to pray. If you know you'll see that person again, put that person on your radar. There's a difference between first encounters and acquaintances, people who you know, but you don't yet consider them friends. You just bump into them. You say, hi, how are you? But then there are those friends, people who you're able to say more to than just, hi, how are you, and talk about the weather with, but you, you talk about some life things. What are you doing? Maybe, maybe this is someone at your kid's sports. You sit with them on the bleachers every week, and you talk. But that's different than... Someone you get together with, someone you invite over to your homes, maybe that's the next step. You, you make plans with them, you do something with them. And even that's different than real-life conversations. Where someone says, I went to a funeral last week, and I'm just struck by the permanence and inevitability of death. That's not yet a spiritual conversation, but it's a real-life one. And you can quickly take that from a real-life conversation to a spiritual one. You you can ask them questions about their spiritual background and current beliefs and, and say something about why death is in this world. But that's still not yet describing gospel facts, which is the hope that's within you. They need to hear the problem. They need to understand the person. And they need to know what it means to appropriate that in their lives with repentance and faith and calling out to him who's able to save. Sometimes you get to these gospel facts and you've communicated them clearly and you go again and again and again over them. But that's different than actually calling someone to repent of their sin and put their trust in Christ. To love them enough to not just say, here it is, come and get it if you want. But come on, Jim, you know, you know, Really? Are you going to keep shunning the Lord who laid down his life for yours? It's an appeal. It's bold. It's risky. You might go back to step one or step zero, and they're not in your life anymore. But that's suffering for the Lord and suffering for the cause of Christ. And sometimes they believe. And then we meet together for the purpose of growing and The basics of what Christians do, Bible and prayer and church and fellowship and Lord's Supper. Do you know where these relationships are in your life? Whatever you do, do it with gentleness and respect, Peter tells us. Do it with gentleness and respect. Not cornering, not angling, not obnoxious, not forceful. Not manipulative, not haughty, not prideful, not a defense of being right. Again, not a defense of us as ourselves. But no, defending Christ, or even better, just showing forth Christ, testifying of Christ in love to Christ and in love to those to whom we represent him. It's loving to them, and it honors God. But it begins with the heart. Remember, that's how verse 15 began. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor him as Lord. Oh, in Peter's day, in the Roman world, Caesar is Lord was the going moniker. It was on the Roman coins, it was Roman law, it was Roman culture. 
like hot dogs and baseball and Chevys and cherry pie or apple pies, whatever it is. I think I'm American. It was even a Roman greeting. Do you know that Caesar is Lord was a greeting. You'd bump into someone on the street and they'd say, Caesar is Lord. You'd say, Caesar is Lord. But Peter says, here's where it springs, guys. Here's why we don't witness like we should. We haven't tasted and seen the Lord as good in an in effectual way, in a heartfelt way. In Acts 4, the disciples said, we can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. They had the can't help it. None of us have the can't help it. We have the don't want to it. Don't know what to say it. Not now it. Not a good time it. Not good at it. We need the can't help it. And we need to honor Christ as the Lord in our hearts and to treat him as holy and ultimate and nothing else. Because, lastly, fifth, he is a righteous, suffering Savior. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And the cross being put to death in the flesh but in the resurrection, made alive in the Spirit. Here, Jesus is our example for the mission. Notice it says, for Christ also suffered. The passage before was all about us suffering, and here it says, Christ also suffered. He was righteous, and yet suffered at the hands of the unrighteous. He suffered unrighteously, but he suffered unrighteously for the unrighteous. He's your model, your example. And Christian, he's also your hope. He suffered for the unrighteous. That's all of us. The righteous one died in our place to bring us to God. He bore our death upon the cross so we might, we might be forgiven and reconciled to the God who made us. If you're not a Christian, please hear this loud and clear. This is the hope that we're talking about. This is what we say is the kernel of, of, of everything that grows out of in the Christian life. It starts with this. Christ died in our place. He's the righteous one. We're the unrighteous. And he'll swap with us. Righteousness for unrighteousness. He'll bear our sins and pay our judgment that we might be treated like we're the righteous ones. And we might be brought to God, not like we run to God in our own strength. We have to be brought to him. He died for us, and he brings us in. He did it through his death. He does it through his resurrection. It's our saving hope. That's the content of our message, and that's our example for the mission. I want to close this morning by reading something to you, something Trent sent me yesterday that so aptly describes well elaborates on our passage would you bow with me I'm going to ask you to pray quietly in response to what I read it's long for a quote but this again so fittingly uh, talks about our passage and it's so fitting for our times these days this was written by John Piper in 2003 so 10 years ago it's more relevant today than ever. Pray with me as I read this. The fact that Christians are exiles on the earth does not mean that they don't care about what becomes of the culture. 
but it does mean that they exert their influence as very happy, broken-hearted outsiders. We're very happy sojourners because we've been commanded by our bloody champion to rejoice in these exile miseries. We're happy because the Apostle Paul showed us that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. But our joy is a broken-hearted joy because so many people around the world have not heard the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And our joy is a broken-hearted joy because human culture in every society dishonors Christ glories in its shame, and is bent on self-destruction. And this includes America. American culture does not belong to Christians, neither in reality nor in biblical theology. It never has. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It has since the fall, and it will till Christ comes again. The lordship of Christ over all creation is being manifest in stages. First the age of groaning, and then an age of glory. Now we're waiting. But we're not passive. We do not smirk at the misery or the merrymaking of immoral culture. We weep, or we should. Being exiles does not mean being cynical. It does not mean being indifferent. The salt of the earth does not mock the rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons. And where it can't, it weeps. And the light of the world does not withdraw, saying good riddance to godless darkness. It labors to illuminate. Being Christian exiles in American culture doesn't end our influence. It takes the swagger out of it. We don't get cranky that our country's been taken away. We don't whine about the triumphs of evil. We're not hardened with anger. We understand this is not new. This is the way it's been from the beginning. Rome, the empire, was not just degenerate. It was deadly. Yes, Bible times was a time for influence as it is now but not with huffing and puffing as to reclaim our lost laws, rather with tears and persuasion and perseverance, knowing that the folly of racism and the exploitation of the poor and the de-godding of education and the horror of abortion and the collapse of heterosexual marriage, these things are the tragic death tremors of joy, not the victory of the left or the right. The greatness of Christian exiles is not success, but service. Whether we win or lose nationally and politically, we witness to the way of truth and beauty and joy. We don't own culture. We don't rule it. We serve it with broken-hearted joy and long-suffering mercy for the good of man and the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we say, May it be so in our lives, in this church, in this city, in this country, and in this world, for your sake, Lord Jesus, because you're the good shepherd, you're the Savior, you're the Lord. God, there's none besides you. May we honor you in our hearts this morning. Amen.